It is January the 20th, 2022, and you are listening to Curiously Polar. And uh, still no intro music, so <laughs> just, we should sing it. Hi, Mario. You know, yeah, you can do that, <laughs> not me. Please not, <laughs> Thank please, <you>. not. <laughs> please not. Please <laughs> ah, not. Another polar yeah. news reel for you. There are things yeah. happening in the Antarctic and the Arctic. And, uh, yeah, have... and this episode 145. Yes, this, uh, 145. Nice we are, um, we have, a, we have a nice sunny day today. How's the weather in Tromsø? How much snow did you shovel? Oh, I spent three days over from sun Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday just shoveling. Then yesterday it was raining, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and we have had a snowstorm last uh, night, and uh, there are about 20 centimeters. So as soon as I finish here, I probably go out and, and shovel some snow, because tomorrow we're going to be having plus degrees again in, in rain. Wet, so wet snow is you, even you want, more fun. You want to remove the snow <laughs> before it gets wet. Or <laughs> Yeah, we, we have uh, down here in, uh, in northern Germany, uh, it's around freezing, a little bit of grizzle coming from the sky nothing to worry about at this point yeah the, the the pity here is that today it would be the day where we could see the sun for the first time in in two months so that would have been really nice to be outside of uh and, and being able to uh, go to the south uh, end of the island here and uh, as tradition welcome the sun just look and welcome the sun for these few seconds where it comes up in between the mountains but um well you, you <laughs> mean you mean uh, instead coming up means uh, it's just sticking out a millimeter and then goes back again uh, yes it's because uh like south of tromsø you have all these mountains yeah and uh and it comes up in between two peaks in a valley it's uh it's quite uh quite scenic and usually it's uh it's an event that gathers a lot of people down on the south of the awesome. island in places where you can see. Because theoretically, the sun is above the theoretical horizon already. It yeah, but came the, up a couple, of, a couple kind of days ago. But, yeah, uh, but it, it has to come up above the mountains before we can see it. So today is the official Sol Day and uh, Sol, uh, Sol Dag uh, Sunday. And, uh, and um, pupils in schools and in public offices, they get offered... Uh, oh, really? By their employer, a uh, a bun uh, with a with ah, cream, awesome. like a <laughs> that represents the sun. Yeah, yeah. Is it isn't it funny how many traditions around the world are linked to to the calendar in some way? Yeah. So it's uh, I mean the astro astronomical events like these. I mean this is this is quite big, especially in the old days where <laughs> you were really struggling through the winter. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe and maybe yeah. where you couldn't explain a lot of the things happening. Yeah. Exactly. So let us talk like let's yes. talk about a few things that have happened around the yeah. Arctic and we, Antarctic regions. <laughs> yeah, we, we can go we can go from uh, from these uh, primeval uh, things like uh, waiting for the sun to come over the horizon to uh, the internet. <laughs> Which is an Isn't everyday it? thing for us nowadays. Yeah. So, uh, internet up up north is bit uh, is a bit in trouble right now. What is going on? Yeah, well, uh, we mentioned a few episodes ago about uh, how Svalbard is connected uh, with the mainland with this huge con internet connection. Well, this uh, optical fiber, high speed, very very high speed uh, connection is made by 
two cable is maintained by two cables and and one of them has uh, broken and uh, or the the cable doesn't function anymore and it's um it is a an issue because uh, a lot of the uh research that is going on <laughs> there's lots of Valbard data going is, back and forth yeah there there is a lot of data going back and forth but not only the data is also the controlling of the equipment so the uh the, uh, all of these um, instruments that are uh, communicating with satellites that are measuring the, like in this case here, you can see the uh, uh, the uh, ice cut uh, uh, system just above Longyearbyen. The, the Daily uh, Mail has a, has an, it has a lot of good pictures uh, about this. So yeah, yeah. Um, the, I saw these when I was in Svalbard. I saw these domes, these uh, satellite dish domes yeah. uh, in the distance. I was like wondering what they were for. So that's research stuff. Yeah. And this is this is research for looking at uh, the behavior and the composition of the uh, stratosphere and right. uh, measuring solar wind and predicting, for example, disturbances to power grids all around the globe. And and these are actually data that are not just research on a theoretical <laughs> basis; are also very useful for predicting and for uh, countering the effects of uh, the uh, the solar weather, for example, the space weather. And the cable goes from Longyearbyen down to Andoya uh, on the top uh, of the on the northern tip of um, uh, the Westerolen. And Andoya uh, is uh, famous, at least uh, for those that are interested in space exploration or something, as being one of the uh, rocket ranges that are using for sending uh, up um, scientific satellites. And um, yeah. And uh, this cable uh, that runs uh, all these <laughs> kilometers is uh, quite a uh, it's quite long, and it's very difficult to understand where it is that is broken. So probably they'll have to pick uh, pick up the one end and the other end and go down with these uh, unmanned uh, vehicles, uh, underwater vehicles, and uh, or ROVs, and uh, and go down and follow it and see what has happened. It, it could be. It's interesting because these cables are quite sturdy. They are. Um, yeah. They're they really. I mean, the, here, here's a graphic down here that shows a bit of like what they look like, and they are. They are so many layers, yeah. and then they have uh, covers and and shields and stuff around them. But still, it's broken. How does this break? Is there like spies involved? Well, on the on the top right. Uh, on the top right corner of this uh, window, you have anchors, for example. Ah, so you okay. could have a, an anchor that is uh, taken in. An anchor could be any object that that, uh, that uh, fouls uh, the cable. So it could be uh, a trawler uh, that was trawling. Now, I do not know exactly, and, and actually these are classified information, where the cable goes. I mean, there are there is a like an, an area on the on the nautical map that says I mean there are cables about just about in this area, but uh, but they don't tell you exactly where the cable is, and that's and that's and, presumably uh, to prevent uh, terrorist attacks and things on that cable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you consider, I mean, this is a this is a cable that goes through the connection between the Barents Sea and the North Atlantic. So it is a cable that uh, is crossing the route of just about any uh, naval vessel that. And all, all sorts of vessels that come from the northern uh, route, the northern sea route from the port of Murmansk, the military port of Murmansk, over to the North Atlantic. 
And so the first uh, thing uh, that uh, people were thinking about is, uh, well, it is uh, uh, some sort of exercise of uh, disrupting communication made by some uh, some under underwater uh, operation by the Russians. And, and this <laughs> yeah. is... Uh, I, this I was is, about course, to point like, to the Russians here. Yeah, I mean, who who would do this? Or somebody who wants to blame the Russians, <laughs> do it and then put point the finger. But, but uh, it is... Uh, most likely now that what they are saying uh, as far as i hear here in the, also in in other news sources it could be that there has been a uh, a uh, an underwater uh, earthquake or eruption or something that has actually damaged the cable by uh, geological forces so so that that is probably what uh, what it is most probably the second most likely option is that there was like a, a fishing vessel that has been inadvertently dragged on this cable and it's very dangerous when a trawler hooks onto something because especially if it is something of that magnitude because it's a big big object if a trawler hooks onto something a trawler can sink because the power of the engine would push it forward and and uh, it would squat in the water. Mm. Now the modern trawlers have also systems for preventing this in the in their trawl winches. So if there is too much weight, too much pull in the cables, they would release the cable, and and then the whole thing would be jettisoned. But the time will tell. If if that was the case, then there should be a net somewhere <laughs> attached. And usually the nets of the trawlers are like flying above the the ground and uh, even when they are touching the ground they have rollers so they shouldn't be catching onto a cable so but that is that is weighed and, and goes down to the bottom yeah, of the so, sea. so so we're looking at uh one of two big cables going to Svalbard yes. being broken so right now everything has to squeeze through one yes. connection is that enough is that fast enough at the moment well or? Well, <laughs> we all know that we internet or is, or is every, speed is never fast enough. Or is everyone <laughs> everyone in Svalbard trying to watch Netflix, uh, kind of in pain right well, now because it buffers all I the think, time? No, I think uh, I think the uh, the normal user would uh, would not have any any problem. But uh, there are two cables for a reason, and there is a redundancy so that in case one goes bad, then there is the other one. Now, if the second one goes bad, then we are having a problem like we have seen with the eruption in Tonga where there was one cable, the cable is severed, and uh, and the only way you can have like a normal connection is by using a satellite phone. Because, of course, you could use radios, but uh, there are not that many radios, and, and connection by shortwave radio or longwave radio is not exactly as fast as uh, as or information now, dense as one would like to now have. We are, you cannot we are... watch Netflix over these. Well, it, we we are looking. Of course, at this point, we're also looking at Starlink being becoming a reality. So they have like uh, fifteen hundred or more satellites up right now, and they they provide yeah. fairly low latencies and high speeds. But I think they oh, yeah. do not really fully cover the polar regions just yet, or the Arctic regions. Just no, yet. and now when we are talking about Tonga, for example, the problem. First of all, is that the infrastructure is being wiped out by the waves, yes. that, and and it's been, if it's not being wiped out by the waves, it has been covered by, by volcanic ashes. So right. it's it, there is a problem there, and uh, and then uh, of course it's a question of uh, of taking over the equipment. I think there was yesterday that they had ships going over and uh, 
and uh, arriving in Tonga and delivering the first uh, the first supplies and uh, and uh, equipment for for relief. Uh, this is one thing out in uh, out in in Svalbard. Of course, I mean there are there are uh, other cables. I mean these are ded- dedicated internet. I mean data cables. There are still some old uh, copper cables for telephones and and others. But uh, we're all used to having uh, having a, a high speed internet connection. And also, as I was saying, like there are experiments there are measures there is also like in uh, in new Orleans, there is a a, a a an instrument that measures the distance of the earth to for example the moon mm-hmm. and uh, and the uh, the distance of the earth on to to other objects like satellites that are circling i mean these are I mean, the distance of the moon is might be it might be important for for uh, how do you call it like tide predictions yes. and uh, like extraordinary tides and another thing because there is a little wobble there. But uh, for example, the uh, the satellites. I mean, if if these stations that are measuring where the satellites are and give them instructions and provide the data to give instructions to the satellite to correct their course, if these are not coming fast enough. Then satellites might have disruptions, and then we have also problems. So we are we're quite interconnected there. Ah, okay, yeah. let's hope so, that they find this thing. I I do know that uh, you can fix inter, uh, undersea cables. That there, there's ways yes. to to pull up both ends and then reattach yeah. them in some way. So it is it is. You just have to figure out where it was and and what it was. I mean. That yeah. uh, that is needed to do to go because it's not just that. I mean, you could theoretically, and this is what we were doing at the beginning, where they didn't like, for example, transatlantic cable. You have uh, these uh, cable laying ships that are taking the one end on board, and it just runs over the ship, and then they just sail along and they check the cable along all the way. It's very expensive and it takes a lot of time, so it's easier yes. to go and and figure out where it was. So now they're doing this, but we are having a, quite a few storms up here. So it's not exactly easy to access the north uh, of Norway and the Barents Sea okay. right now. So we'll I'm, pretty, see. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are very interested in getting this fixed as soon as possible. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's move on to a topic that is right in your ballpark. We're talking <laughs> about marine wildlife and especially uh, about narwhals. Yes, um, now we are talking about uh, a species that is extremely ice associated, and uh, and it's it's very difficult to study narwhals. But now my my colleagues from the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources have uh, gone and done a little experiment in the Scottish Sound uh, fjord, so this big fjord in, in eastern Greenland. They have simulated shipping noise, uh, noises uh, from air guns for geological surveys as well, in an area where there are narwhals. And at the same time, they have had instruments on the narwhals to measure their reactions. Basically, narwhals, as soon as they detect some noise that is not what they expect as a natural noise. They go very quiet 
and so they don't produce any more clicks or anything they just shut up so the clicks that are, they use for example for echolocation uh, they are not being used and they move closer to the shore and then they swim close to the shore wow this means that uh, there is a disruption of their normal movement there is an interruption of any activity that has to do with uh, socializing or finding food and uh, and then a change of the route that takes them in a and a much longer uh, route. I mean, if you have to go across the fjord and you go straight across the fjord, that's one thing. But if you have to go all along the coast, all around, it can be sometimes a very long route. So they have not managed to record how long, I mean, to get data enough to say how long this effect lasts. And of course, it's a very complex thing because the effect of noise depends also on quantifying and the noise both on quantity and quality. But narwhals, uh, as an example, in this case, they are extremely easily affected by shipping noise, by man-made noises. And uh, Is that it might the be the first they, study in that direction, or it's the first study where they have seen exactly. I mean, where they have seen what happens, because you have had studies before that have seen that narwhals shut up when there is a noise. So you are recording narrow vocalization, suddenly there is a ship moving around and boop, and then suddenly you lose the narwhals. But what exactly happened here is that they also measured by using these instruments on the on the narwhals, they've measured what the narwhals actually do. And and they stop vocalizing and they move closer to a shore. And, and, vo- uh, and the vocalizing and is essential the for them for communication, for finding food, for lots of things. So they just the, the, the noises disrupt yeah. uh, the narwhals, um, well, part of their survival. It's, it's their soundscape because yeah. they, they actually see the environment through, their, through the sounds. So it's, it's, of course, like you're saying, like finding food. Yeah. But it's also like looking where obstacles are, like locating themselves in the environment. I mean, there is a lot of information in the passive acoustics. So like a narwhal would probably know that it's reaching closer to the ice or something by hearing just the, the passively the mm-hmm. noise of the ice and the noise of the waves on the surface of the water and things like like for example like larger whales and all the mysticites are known not to vocalize with echolocation clicks mm-hmm. so they are definitely navigating and it's seldom that they bang onto a rock or something so it, they, they know when they come close to a rock and it's not because they are seeing it it's because they are hearing it uh, but uh, but there is but there is this uh this special specialization of odontocytes with uh, with echolocalization that is uh that is uh like a very useful especially if you are inshore in a fjord and you're an arwal yeah, and uh, yeah, so, uh, and this is connected to this other uh, study that was uh, looking up uh, in Nunavut, so in the north of Baffin Islands, uh, be between um, uh, like, uh, um, yeah, you have Bailot Island on the northeast of, uh, of Baffin Island, and you have a, a big uh, mining area and shipping of my, mining or mineral uh, minerals from this. Uh, um, mine that is then taken 
further south, like shipped further south for um, processing, for extracting uh, the uh, the mineral. And, uh, and the increase in shipping in there is uh, actually having the same effect on also other species. There are belugas, there are bowheads. Um, we're talking about mostly about cetaceans in this case but i'm sure that uh, that uh, seals are also pinnipeds are also affected by it and possibly also fish and uh, and this is something that is uh, that is quite uh, quite problematic for the local populations you have the population for example the uh, the local inuits and you have settlements of pond inlet for example very close by that are uh, deprived of uh, meeting their food demands or the food necessities by like uh, not finding the animals that are then scared away by the noise of the shipping so there are several examples now i've taken some only on for here from the eastern arctic from the from the north atlantic uh, like the east of uh, the north american continent but uh, there are also examples in the in all over the arctic of uh, of these projects these things that are going on and uh, and of course, when we are talking last episode about the northern sea routes, the last episode about the northern sea routes, uh, increasing shipping through the Russian Arctic is also going to affect uh, the local populations that are relying on marine mammals as a part or a main part of their of their diet. So it's a it's a competition. It's not a competition just, it's between uh, us and the wildlife in some shape yes. or form. <clears throat> yes, between some of us, because uh, some others of us they uh, are using uh, the are using nature in a totally different way. And when you're talking about uh, indigenous people, they have uh, they use uh, the uh, marine mammals as a and, and marine animals as a source of food, and that's of course like very important because uh, like uh, their diet and their habit are of of eating things is balanced and is focused on on these animals but there is also a like a, a like experience the, the this is what you eat to be healthy is uh, like you are not uh, getting scurvy because you get c vitamin through eating uh, like fresh meat and fresh fish out there and uh, and on the other hand there is also the cultural aspects of it i mean it's not just 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 pure food it's not just pure nutrition it's also like spiritual nutrition there is also the the fact that uh, that this these activities of hunting marine mammals are keeping the communities together is the whole structure is based around this Mm -hmm. so that sort of ties us into the next topic which is still whale related and uh that is about orcas moving Yes, and and this is this is actually quite uh, quite an interesting observation. Now, Barents Observer, yeah, observation. Barents Observer is reporting uh, from a study in the Bering Strait, and now we are going over, of course, between Asia and North America, uh, on uh, in the uh, between Alaska and Siberia, and uh, we have actually a study that also looking at the acoustic uh, soundscape of the Bering Strait has detected that orcas are moving further and further north. Over the past eight years, orcas have moved way into the Chochki Sea. Is that something uh, that we are measuring since eight years, or is that something that has 
happened before yeah, well, the, and we just didn't measure it. This project is has been running only for eight years okay. of putting uh, recording devices and so it could have been it could have been much longer. Sense. It could have been much longer, but it's something that uh, has been detected. For fish, for example, in the North Atlantic, there are a couple of articles, but also by colleagues here in uh, in Tromso, about the borealization of marine species. So marine species with climate change and with the water becoming uh, warmer are moving, are, are keeping to the area where the water is at their preferred temperature. They're moving further north in this case. I haven't heard of uh, boreal or Antarcticization, or like, how do you call it, from from the Antarctica? There, there haven't been in my in my newsfeed. I have not seen any. I've not uh, seen any articles about similar things happening in the Antarctic around the Antarctic, also because of this circumpolar current, the Antarctic circumpolar current. But in the north, borealization of marine species is quite well known, and it's something that has happened over the past couple of decades. And so, uh, this so they're, is why they're you trying, find tuna further, to, further north. And they're, they're trying to stay in a temperature range that is the best yes. for them. Well, much. and this is this is in general for marine species. Like uh, you have uh, uh, the the general ecosystem moving moving north, and we're talking about marine species, not just animals, also see like plants, but you. But then there are the super predators. There are, and this is actually quite interesting that the the orcas are not directly bound by the seawater temperature. They are found in all oceans of the world. So they they actually move north because they can. So because there is less ice, so they can move further and further north. And because there is less ice, that would have acted as a lid, as a barrier for orcas' presence, they have access to other food resources. So it's not just that they move north, it's also that they can come and predate on other species that are not particularly their their diet. For example, in the case of the Arctic, they could that they could predate on more on ring seals instead of predating on on uh, on more southern species and so uh, so there can be uh, there can be ecosystem consequences there of having a predator moving further north and at a different speed than uh, than the movement of of other species and that because is of climate change and that is yeah linked to climate change so what that means is if we, if you extrapolate that into i don't know how many years in the future is that uh, their their living space is going to be shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because at one point you can't go further north where it's cold. Well, yeah, unless you are uh, able to to cope with all sorts of different temperatures, but unless uh, but you invent air condition, water condition is, for for, for yourself. Is, yeah, I think I think that uh, we have to look at we have to think about the reaction time to these changes of different species. Mm-hmm. Like if you change the climate around a sequoia tree, that tree will not move. Its seedlings might move, taken, and and the the conditions might happen that the tree will move further north or further south. Like in the case of warming, a sequoia tree might want to move north, or a sequoia, the sequoias in general might want to move north, but that will take 
hundreds if not thousands of years for them to move yeah. per kilometer or or, or something because it, they are slow growing and and of course they don't move by themselves they have to move by the proxy of a seedling if you're talking about birds that are flying <laughs> flying birds well they can move in the space of a few days or a few weeks they can move wherever they want yep. marine mammals and fish that are moving by their own volition they can move also quite fast plankton well, they will have more difficulties of moving <laughs> because they will be taken by the currents, and uh, and if the condition and and also it's a, it's a question of the life cycle of of these organisms. So you for for plankton, for example, you need a special temperature and special currents at a particular stage of their life at the larva development. So uh, so that's of course one limitation. It's I mean ecology is. Is complex, but I think that uh, probably people can, in general, get an idea of how how dire it can be to change the conditions quickly, the climatic conditions quickly for a lot of the a lot of the species, and uh, and of course about how imbalance can be can be uh, can be obtained can be achieved very quickly, and this this is what we are calling a tipping point. Like a system can be resilient up to a, a certain point, and then yeah. and then it can tipple over. Like if you put a glass on the bottom, or a, a full glass on the at the side of the table, you can tip it a little bit, and then at one point, if you tip it a little more, poof, it will fall down. Lots of cats probably have tried this, and they are still doing experiments. <laughs> so yeah, so this tipping point happens also with climate. I mean, you can have like warming events, warming events is fine, but at one point you cannot come back to the original state. So this is a roundabout way where the climate with its, uh, its well, creating new stabilities pretty much behind tipping points is going to um, influence wildlife to have to move somewhere else. And that will have consequences because that, 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 that wildlife needs food and that food then well yeah might, might, not be, might just might, not might just be there, not be there or, anymore or it might not be enough or it might not grow fast enough yeah these are things and that of course are and of course there are others competing up there that are getting intruded by the wildlife yeah. moving yeah, north yeah exactly okay, <laughs> hmm. okay. Yeah. well let's go to something uh a bit well is it positive um they found nests they found nests on the seafloor <laughs> what about that yeah. we we stay we stay under the sea but uh, now we're going south we're going to the antarctica and uh, this is the guardian that is reporting uh, about this discovery of 60 million nests in the Weddell sea so in an area that is usually covered by uh, by ice that's we were mentioning the uh, shackleton expedition um uh, and uh, last during the last episode, well, going down under the sea and looking at the sea bottom, they found this huge number of fish nests. Now, not all fish build nests; these do. They are Antarctic ice fish, and uh, they are from a family called Nototenioid, and uh, they are found in the Southern Ocean and around Antarctica, and uh, they are particularly interesting because they do not have hemoglobin so they don't have 
a protein that transports oxygen to How do the, uh, they do it then? Well, the oxygen can be transported by diffusion, for example, already dissolved into the water. And, the, and if you live in an environment that is cold, your metabolism is also quite slow. So mm-hmm. your your requirements for oxygen, if you don't if you don't need to keep a higher temperature, requirement for oxygen are are actually are actually reduced. And uh, and they they are well known or. Yeah, they are known because they have this uh, this transparent blood, and the blood also has a an antifreeze proteins in it, so that they can be in sub zero temperatures and still not freeze, <laughs> still like move around. Maybe you have seen, uh, Chris. You probably mm, have seen these pictures of the freezing uh, currents that are under Antarctica. Yes, like water that is get is super cooled and drops down and freezes all the life under. Yes, I've seen la- that under under their, their passage. So and, that's uh, that's and f- the, that's a phenomenon of water where you can cool it below freezing point and it will stay liquid yes. if it doesn't have any any crystallization cores for the ice. And then at one exactly. point, at one point when you introduce some disturbance. Uh, and uh, uh, some, some nucleation freezes. point, and it yeah. goes whoop, and it freezes within like seconds. Yeah, exactly. And and these fish actually can actually survive these situations because really? they will not freeze inside. They will stay. They will stay like put in the ice. That's amazing. And but they will not freeze their body because they have antifreeze. And so when the ice around thaws after a few hours or a few days, well, they could move about again. Unless it's so too are, long, and then they might starve in yeah, there. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But there is a there is a <laughs> a great chance that a few of them will survive. Yeah. But this is amazing because nobody has seen that they could. I mean, they've seen that they make nests, and that's okay. Well, there are several other areas where they have where scientists have seen that these notosinoids they make nests, and uh, and like also in a colony there about sixty million. That's oh. about the largest number of fish how big are these fish and how big are the nests is that like a pizza shape i mean they're round yeah probably is that pizza size about about, yeah they're about they're about that size probably these uh, like uh, now i don't i don't remember exactly the uh the size of these uh but uh they are probably between 10 15 see 20 centimeters long so they are not uh, they're not huge but uh but they are uh they are quite uh, quite an interesting <laughs> an interesting species. So th- they found millions, yeah. sixty million nests, sixty active million nests. nests. It's important, and it must be nests, it must be right? amazing because you get like it's it's like a, I don't know finding finding the cemetery of the elephants or something. I mean, but it's like it, you get into a place and it's totally unexpected. You've you've seen the bottom is kind of muddy uh, and it's uh, silt yeah. and clay. There is not a lot of life there. And then suddenly you are there and you're just totally unprepared to see that there are so many fish But, but an animal nesting somewhere means that the conditions for nesting are good there. Otherwise, it wouldn't, uh, yeah, and it wouldn't nest there. I mean, so. These, these are uh, these are areas that have not been looked at very very uh, finely by by scientists before. I mean, nobody has seen all these things, and these are actually 
close to the areas where the expedition for finding the endurance is oh. is going. So these are the data that an expedition like like that one could find because they are going down with the with an ROV and uh, and checking out what the sea bottom is. <laughs> it's also it's also interesting. These fish are uh, one of the preys of the seals that are uh, that are around Antarctica, and I mean. My first thought is like, why would they be so far into the Weddell Sea under the ice? Well, you have the Weddell seal, for example, that can go and keep the, can go under the ice and keep their their holes open by by gnawing the the uh, the sides of the uh, or the the perimeter of the of the water hole. Well, why would a seal go there? And say yes. <laughs> well, probably because the seals know that there are these areas with a lot of ice fish. If you are one seal and you're on top of sixty million ice fish, I think you have a good reason for being there. Yes. But the ice fish also, like evolutionary, <laughs> in their evolutionary history, they have been <laughs> like learning that, or like they've been selected to go under the ice as far as possible, so they would be. Uh, protected by predation hmm okay from under the sea to above land we are looking at humans and their endeavors to do amazing things to do amazing things and this is uh yeah i mean this is from uh, explorers web it's uh, an interesting site with a lot of uh, a lot of exploration and not only arctic and antarctic also like uh, uh, himalaya other like uh, aconcagua things um expeditions and it's about uh, feats and um, and here they are reporting of uh, uh, a couple of expeditions uh, for example you have uh, preet chandy that has uh, completed a solo trek uh, she's uh, mentioned i think i was reading on the bbc website that she's the first woman of color that uh, take uh, taken a solo trek to the south pole a solo trek and yeah and wow. that's and she has completed it very well and um, and uh, and then there are um a couple of other expeditions there is one if you come to the uh, yeah this is um, this is pretty chandy that you're seeing right now with their pulka in the back and um, they're in the Justin Pack show in uh, Jamie Fisher child um, Childs that is uh, that are uh, um, trying to reach um, the uh, pole of inaccessibility I think it was because there are there are different poles I mean you have the geographic south pole but there is also a pole of inaccessibility that's a place that is the most difficult to reach well and I it doesn't look like they're going to be reaching it they wanted to reach it with uh, kites uh, like snow and kites kite skiing mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's usually something that is quite effective I've seen of an expedition that was retracing if the wind uh, like goes in of, the right direction. <laughs> yeah. So in some areas it has been used like in a fantastic expedition for example that went from Tula in Greenland over to uh, the uh, to the uh, Peary land so the north of Greenland and then down on the top of the inland ice almost all the way down to Scoresby Sound. Uh, by using kites and this is of course uh, something that can be done 
I mean, first of all, you have to have constant wind, like here in Greenland and in Antarctica. The winds, uh, obviously, they were not they were not favorable this time because these people right. had to had to stop and and divert to the South Pole to be picked up. And uh, and the other thing is that you have to be careful about about the terrain. There are some some places where you can have rocks emerging, and it's not just ice. And and if there is ice, there it can also be crevasses. And it's not necessarily a flat ice. You know, when the wind is blowing a lot, it uh, creates hummocks. It creates uh, these dunes that uh, can be quite uh, sharp. And uh, yeah, so it's um, there are still expeditions going, and uh, and especially the solo expeditions uh, and the expeditions going to untraditional routes like traversing all the way going to this pole of inaccessibility are still in the uh, in the news quite quite Amazing. interesting coming to the uh, the limits of uh, of what humans can do and with uh, ingenuity uh, being unsupported of course with a lot more safety than when the earlier uh, explorers yeah, well, were doing because they have satellite phones have... they can call for help they are yeah yeah but still it's not that easy to get down south and it's uh, not always that you can get a helicopter or an airplane of course coming not. And picking you up of course unless not. there is of course uh, uh, something that is changing also right now that is probably going directly to the next uh, to the next uh, and last item, and it's about Antarctica and uh, uh, runways. <laughs> yes, this has been around. This this is a this is a bit older. This is from December, uh, end of December, right about Christmas. Yeah, so um, we are about three weeks late on this one here. But uh, uh, this is about the uh, two new runways to be built by uh, the Argentina the Argentinians. Right. Uh, there are uh, we have mentioned before other runways and uh, i think i believe that you had a, a map of uh, of uh, runways didn't you the there's one here there yeah there are quite a lot of places where planes can land now we're talking about runways that are mostly on ice or snow so they're not just for just about anybody uh, to any plane to land uh, there are quite a lot in the peninsula in the in the upper left uh, Course, area yeah. in the corner there uh, there are lots of bases and uh, and these are uh, of course uh, a lot of these most of these are for scientific purposes so they are to facilitate the um, movement of personnel and goods for uh, for the for the bases uh, practically all of them but more and more they are going to be used by tourists we have seen already quite a lot of uh, airplanes this year uh, there have been previously uh, tourism by just uh, flying over antarctica by uh, planes especially out of uh, out of new zealand taking a trip just a flight over Antarctica a and back again without stopping tour, yeah. a sightseeing from the airplane, which is fantastic. I mean, and and of course you see a lot of Antarctica in a short time, and you have the birds view, the bird's the, eye view. But the traditional way to get to Antarctica used to be, and it still is, mostly by by ship. By ship, but it's getting more and more competitive here. People have uh, less time. 
maybe more money i don't know but uh we are getting we are we are really seeing a lot of air travel to antarctica landing also on antarctica setting your foot down on the continent there there are no facilities at the moment that will accept tourists so the the air bases are only accept accepting the people the personnel of the base people that have to work there or official visitors like for example uh, a couple of years ago when there was the anniversary of the amundsen uh, reaching the south pole uh, we had the uh, we had the ministers going down there and uh, to the Scott base, Scott Amundsen base at the South Pole, and uh, and that uh, that of course is not people working at the base there, but the official visit. There is some military personnel, even though uh, Antarctica is uh, not to be militarized, but there are some military bases. Argentina, Chile have military bases uh, there that are doing research, of course, they are, they are meteorological uh, bases. Uh, Spain has a base on Deception Island that is mostly served by the military because also the military might have the ships and the aircrafts for going down to Antarctica. So you, you mean they're finding loopholes to get some military? Yeah, well, one could say loopholes, yes. And, uh, and then it can be more or less over, like open. <laughs> military presence because you can also have like personnel that is coming down as a biologist but or as a meteorologist but they are actually actually military, military biologists that sounds that has a quite a mouthful well, yeah there is lots of biology in like bio weapons for <sighs> oh, example biological yeah, okay weapons, let's not go sound. there <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um yeah so uh, so in general there is a tendency of having more and more airplanes and uh, even if for the moment the tourism is just setting their foot down on Antarctica and coming up there is going to be more and more of a pressure for staying longer if you're staying longer on the Antarctic continent you might need to have facilities there you might need to have emergency facilities in case the airplanes cannot land uh, and take off again uh, within a short period of time there's going to be need for rescue, for search and rescue operations, for something much more complex than just the scientific expeditions. Right. And, of course, we have a, uh, a risk of contamination uh, by just human refuse, for example. There's going to be much more. We were talking about this also last time. And uh, and then there is the uh, problems of also of uh, climate uh, more flights mean that uh, it's not just let's say essential or more or less essential research going down there there is also going i mean if it's tourism there is much more of a uh, much more traffic and much more burning of fossil fuels down there because of course air, airplane are for the moment mostly burning fossil fuels right ah yeah. okay people People yep. making their presence and, known. And if there was some flashing on my glasses right now, it was because the snowplow just passed by. <laughs> ah, there we go. Okay, so um, I think I'll leave you to plowing a bit more snow today, maybe. Yes. Hopefully get rid of it before the rain comes. Mm. And uh, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll wait. It's actually quite uh, quite stormy right now with lots of whirls of snow around. And yeah, I, be, be careful <laughs> so you're not buried under a snow avalanche from a roof or something. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's actually... 
it happens quite quite often. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, yeah. for joining us here on Curiously Polar with our Polo Newsreel. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, everyone, take care. And oh, by the way, don't forget to interact with us. We have a Curiously Polar Twitter account that you can uh, yeah, get a hold of us if you have interesting topics to suggest. And make sure you let us know. And uh, we'll be back soon. Until then, everyone, take care and bye-bye. Yep, take care. And thank you, Chris, for all the technology behind it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a challenge right now. <laughs> See yes. you. See you.